One other quick announcement, if you haven't had opportunity to check our choir out in recent months, and particularly even last week, we had a good group that showed up, and right after the service, to my right, your left, uh, they'll be practicing and encourage you to uh, check out the choir at the end of the season and give you opportunity to know whether that's a ministry that maybe God has for you. Well, on a personal note, uh, Alice and I are pretty excited because our two sons, uh, the M&N brothers, Mark and Matt, are coming back this week. Uh, one comes back on Tuesday, one back, comes back on Thursday. Our youngest son is very frugal, so he's going to spend two days in two airports to save $150, uh, so he will uh, come the most inexpensive way possible, but uh, we're looking forward to seeing him. Well, this morning what I want to do is I want us to uh, look at what is so crucial and important for us to understand for our own sake, but also for the sake of trying to get this message out to others. It is so easy for us to be confused about that which is most vital for us to understand. It's interesting, I was reading a story uh, this past week about this soldier who was in World War II. He was actually fighting in Italy, and he was caught up in a firefighter, and he was running like crazy to find a foxhole, found a foxhole, but it was rather shallow, and so he was desperately trying to dig it deeper as all the things that were going around his head as far as gunfire and bombs and everything else, and he had nothing to dig with other than his hands, so he was just scraping like crazy. Then all of a sudden, he found something metal, and initially thought that this was going to be a tool for his use, but then as he pulled it out, he discovered it was a cross. He didn't really know what to do with it. Then all of a sudden, another man jumped into his foxhole, and as he looked up, he was really surprised but excited because the, the soldier that jumped into his foxhole was a chaplain, an army chaplain. And so he held up the cross, and he said, it's great that you're here. How do you use this thing? <laughs> now, now, some people look at religious symbols as something we use. As, you know, if you rub it the right way, maybe a genie or God will pop out of it, and he'll do all three wishes that you have for him, and he'll have to grant them. And whether it's escaping from a foxhole experience or some other challenge or tragedy in your life, you're looking for some way to make it work. How does this thing supposed to, to function? How does it, how does it, how does it, how do you manipulate it to do what you want it to do? And in many ways, that's how people approach God. They're thinking, of what's that little key or, or, or cue that will allow God to kind of prompt at, uh, move at my prompting? Well, as we looked at last week, as we looked at the book of Romans, if you have your Bibles, you might want to start turning the book of Romans. So we're going to look at Romans 1 again for a moment and then jump to Romans chapter 4. We're, we're going to try to see how, how, do you, how do you get this thing to work, uh, the cross or the person who was on the cross, uh, which is Christ. How, how, does that, how does that play out in life? Well, as we said last week, for you really understand the good news, you've got to understand the what? The bad news. And it was interesting, I was sharing with you last week, and uh, as I preach for 45 minutes, I get to preach longer in the, in the first service, maybe 50 minutes. Uh, I was talking to someone who was new to the church, and his question was, can you explain to me sin? And I'm thinking, I just spoke for 50 minutes on sin. I guess the preacher was a little unclear in the pulpit. You know, they say a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew, all right? And so I'm thinking that maybe I'd make it a little more clear. And I had an opportunity to talk with him. I had a good conversation. He actually came back uh, in the first service, and it was a great opportunity just to talk a little bit further. But sometimes what we do, preacher types as well as you people out there, we, we take religious truth, and rather than making it clear, we, we cloud it up. 
And so what I want to do is I want to look a little bit toward last week, and I want to take the, the, the big review again, and as we look at what the Bible says about sin, and then we'll jump ahead to looking at the solution, which is salvation. So what I want to do this morning is make sense of sin and then make sense of salvation. So two main ideas, but if you looked at the outline a little bit, there's a lot of subpoints in between. So I never do this on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to race through some things. I'm going to try to speak fast and give you a lot of information, and uh, we're going to do that. But actually what I'm going to do is, is give you some definitions of sin. Obviously when I communicated last Sunday for him, he didn't quite get the, the clear definition of what it meant to actually do a sin or to be a sinner. So we're going to try to deal with that today. And I'm going to get help from some theologians, and then I'm going to get some help, obviously, from Scripture, and then I'm going to get some help from people in our church. As We had an opportunity to be in a couple life groups last week. Uh, I, I asked them, well, how would you define sin? And so I got a variety of definitions from a, from a couple groups, and we'll look at that as well. Because as I was sharing, it's interesting the Bible doesn't call the followers of God adults. He calls us what? Children. We're the children of God. We're not the adults of God. And if you can communicate truth clearly to a child, then it's a good chance. It's not a, it's not a slam dunk, but it's a good chance if you can communicate to a child, then an adult will be able to understand it as well. So we're going to look back and try to make sin very clear for us because unless we understand the bad news, we're not going to really understand or value the good news. So here we go, making sense of sin. Here's a theologian. Theologian, <coughs> excuse me, Wayne Grudem said this, Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act or attitude. And that can be whether it's passively or aggressively, you know, in your face or just kind of behind the scenes. But it's when you somehow live in a failure to conform to God's law uh, in act or attitude. And how is that separated? Well, you know, if you look at the Ten Commandments, which we probably look at the moral law in a variety of different ways that way, you take one of the commandments, recorded in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, which says, Thou shalt not bear false witness uh, against your neighbor. Now, that's an act. If, if you lie, that's very definable in terms of here's the truth, and you went uh, south of the truth, and it was an action that you committed by defrauding a person, maybe for your advantage or to hide something you've done or whatever it might be, and it's an actual act. Well, how about attitude? Well, the Bible does, does talk about attitude because some of the sins listed in His moral law describe that. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the next commandment says, Thou shalt not covet. And in that particular passage in the Old Testament, it lists some things you can covet. You can covet someone's house, their ox. How many um, coveted somebody's ox this week? Anybody do that? Oh, you are a righteous group out there, really righteous. But there might be some other things you saw somebody had that you wish you had, and if you could do whatever it could to get that, you might be tempted to do that. But often the sin of coveting or being envious of something is, is never played out or it's never seen, but it grabs your heart. It grabs your emotions. It grabs your values. And so you can break God's commandment not only in something you actually do, but actually something you really think and feel and are consumed by. And then people who, who are always unhappy with what they have, boy, it sure plays out in life, doesn't it? Okay, sin is, a, is my failure to, to conform to the moral law of God and act or attitude. In the first service, Brian Burns is one, of my na- is one of my neighbors on our block, and his house is right across from ours, and his is a two-story, mine is a one-story. Now, I could covet 
his house, because it's bigger than mine, he would never know it. Of course, on the other side, the, the bigger your house, the more you have to clean, right, and take care of. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why sometimes bigger is not always better. Sometimes it is, but it, it, it's, it's, it's something that can consume who we are, and that is sin. Uh, another one has said this. In fact, Grudem said this as well. Sin is living according to your nature. In, in Romans 5.12, it says that in Adam we have all sinned. And so as we have a hard time maybe wrapping our minds around, the Bible describes that, that we sin not by accident. We don't sin because maybe someone taught us to sin. Any of you parents taught your children to sin? You know, I want to teach them all the bad words I know. I want to teach them to, to, to lie and cheat and everything else. We don't teach uh, our children to sin. They, they, they come by that way naturally. And the Bible says that we are by nature children of wrath. And the Bible says that we're basically not good, but we're basically bad. And people don't want to hear that message, but that's what the Bible describes. Just do what you do naturally and you'll fall into sin. Thirdly, Charles Riley puts it this way, sin is anything contrary to the character of God. Now, right now, we're all kind of think. I'm speaking theologically. We'll get it down to the, the, the other levels in a moment. But that's a great definition of sin because when you think about it, God is to be our Heavenly Father. He is the Heavenly Father where we are participating in that relationship is another thing. And, and what we do reflects on Him. Just as a parent, when your child messes up, you're hoping no one else sees it because it speaks about you often you think about as a parent or how you're raising them, whatever it might be. And, and let's be honest, they pick up their sin naturally, so you don't have to teach them to, to rebel or whatever. But they fall short of the character or standard you want for your family. And see, God is completely good, so when we do that which is bad, it's contrary to His character. God is merciful. When we're not merciful, it's contrary to His character. God is loving, and when we're unloving, it's contrary to His character. And so we are to be His followers, just following who He is. If we want to get biblical, the Apostle John said in 1 John 3, 4, and he said it in a very simple statement, sin is lawlessness. And so whenever we break what God has specifically has said, what to do or what not to do, then we are falling into sin. The Apostle Paul put it this way, sin is disobedience or rebellion. And really, that's really the heart of all sin in many ways. When you look at when you look at rebellion. You know, think of the first sin, Adam and Eve. I mean, they had it pretty easy. They didn't have to even memorize the Ten Commandments. All they had to memorize is the what? The one commandment. You just don't eat of that, the forbidden fruit. And as you think of how simple that would be, they had everything else in the world to enjoy and participate in. And, and then they looked at that which was forbidden. At that point, the sin was a sin of of telling God that He doesn't know what's best. We rebel to Him. We, we go our own way. We disobey Him because we think our way is better than His way. Number seven, and this was given, oh, back, back to sin is foolishness. It's interesting in Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, the fool has said in his heart there is no, there is no God. He also says there is no sin as well. But sin is foolishness and destructive. It goes on in Psalm 14.1 is that when a fool says in his heart there is no God, then he is led into, into corrupt deeds. But not only is, is sin fun, um, is fool, is sin is foolishness and destructive, is that we realize that when we do that which is wrong, not only is it wrong in God's, God's heart and mind, but it destroys us. Uh, turn to Romans 1. I had you turn in there earlier. 
But, but Romans 1 talks about God giving us up to our sin. That if, if we want to rebel against him, if we want to disobey him, if we want to fall into that which is filled with darkness rather than light, all he has to do is remove his hands and let us fall deeper into deeper into destructive behavior. In the more familiar identification of sin, we, we hear about the sexual immoralities. People f- exchange natural affections from a man to a woman, a woman to a man is the natural affections now go from man to a man and a, a woman to a woman. And we know all the things that have helped happened health-wise for those who have done that and the destructive relationships that happen. But what's interesting to me, he goes on, and we looked at that last week, is that he begins to list a variety of other sins that are destructive as well. He talks about those who, who cause strife, who whisper behind other people's back who are untrustworthy. In fact, he has a list of the uns. Look at verse 31 in Romans chapter 1. He said, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, and unmerciful. Now, we had some reluctant hands in the first service, so I won't put this on you right now. But I dare say if we were really honest and said, okay, how many this week could describe some of your behavior has been unloving or unforgiving or unmerciful or undiscerning, doing some foolish acts, being untrustworthy. We would all raise our hands. And not only in each individual week, but that's been the pattern of our life so long that we are those kinds of people. Now, we often think, well, that, you know, that's, you know that's, that's not being very nice this week, but just how bad is it? Well, look at verse 32 who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of what? Death. If we're untrustworthy, if we're unforgiving, if we're unmerciful, if we're undiscerning, that is worthy of death because it is contrary to the character of God. It breaks His moral law. It is foolish. It is destructive. It falls short of the glory of God. But then he goes on and says this, not only those who do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Even if you don't participate, but you kind of wink at what other people are doing or somehow give tacit approval, then it's like you participate in the sin. What what a blanket statement of judgment. In the first service, uh, Brian Burns has his birthday today, and they were celebrating his birthday or saying happy birthday to him. He led worship this morning. But, you know, this month is a month in which something else has kind of been birthed. Uh, Did you look at what happened in Los Angeles this week? We now have the first probably annual LBGT Heritage Month. You know what LBGT stands for? It stands for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Heritage Month. And so for the entire month, we are celebrating those lifestyles as being legit and ought to be affirmed and recognized. But see, the challenging thing is not just a point on that, but can you imagine how about having this week, we're going to have a week in, or a month of the WBHV uh, Heritage Month. And what would be the WBHV? It would be recognizing whispers, backbiters, haters of God, and violent people this, this month. You know, wh- why, pick, why not just pick them all, and whatever behavior you're experiencing, we'll celebrate. 
And you see a culture began to go spiraling down where not only do you have people participate in those activities, but they approve of them and celebrate them. And for those who try to look at a medical explanation of that, they're looking for a particular homosexual gene or a gay or lesbian gene. I mean, you're going to put a genes to everything? You know, the transgender gene, the bisexual gene, which means maybe, I guess you've got a half of each gene. Uh, you know, do you have the, the backbiter's gene? Do you have the unloving gene? Do you have the unforgiving gene? You know, what gene? Are, every, every aberrant behavior or every sinful behavior identified by God is connected to how your wires are put together in your brain or in your, in your body. And even if we were to come up with some of those genes, the issue is the gene that is destructive is the, the sin gene. We all have it, and we are responsible for it. So as we think about sin, sin is pervasive. It's foolishness, and it's destructive. But let's look at some, some people's this week's definition of sin. Number seven, sin is fun. Uh, Hap Stevens, that... that Spiritual giant in our church. That was, that was his definition of sin. Sin is that which is fun. But if you're going to put sun, you have to put fun. You'll also have to add deceiving next to it. In fact, he was actually in agreement with, with Moses. Moses in Hebrews 11 describes sin this way, that sin is that which is the passing pleasure. Remember the story of Moses? Moses was in the, the court of Pharaoh, and he had everything going for him. And then he came to that crisis point of life. He had to decide, was he going to identify with God and his people or was he going to identify with the world in Pharaoh's court? And if he stayed in Pharaoh's court, man, he had everything going for him. Every pleasure was there. But he recognized if he went away from God's perspective, it would be a passing pleasure. And see, that's how sin is deceitful. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, that, that we ought to be very careful unless we get caught up in the, the hardness of the, deceit, of the deceitfulness of sin. See, everything that we do has a price tag on it. And there's some things we can enjoy for a, for a season, but it'll eventually catch up with us. And when you think every sin has a destructive element in it, again, even, even the socially acceptable sin, well, you know, you're not, I'm not particularly a forgiving per- person. I'm not a particularly loving person. I'm not a particularly trustworthy person. Well, how can you, how can you have relationships if that describes who you are? You'll get away with it for a time, but then pretty soon everybody will run away from you rather than run to you. What is sin? Sin is a failure to conform to the moral law of God and act or attitude. It's living according to your nature. It's anything contrary to the character of God. It's lawlessness. It's disobedience. It's foolishness and, destru- and destructive behavior. It's fun but deceiving. And, and another way, it's also sin is just simply doing wrong <laughs> or what's bad. Brian Bohr, that that. That theologian in our small group simply said, what is sin? It's this doing what's bad. And see, that's what we need to understand. And we can explain that to a child, can't we? Is there anything in your life that you do that's wrong? Dagmar Lehman said, very simple, very simple definition. What's sin? It's doing that which is wrong. We all have an internal sense of what is right. And when we don't do what's right, we know that that which we have done is wrong. And that's what sin is. Have you ever done anything that which is wrong? Have you ever done anything that which was bad? And Kenny put it this way, sin is doing what you should not do and not doing what you should do. Bill Bannon put it this way, sin is doing what doesn't please God. You remember at times when you've disappointed, remember when you were growing up and your parents were around and you did something you knew that they didn't like and, and it brought kind of shame to, to them. You knew what it was as you didn't please them. 
And because you didn't please them, it was something you knew that you had done that was wrong. Another one simply said, sin is doing what makes you feel bad. And that's a, you know, a light on your dashboard that says that something is wrong. Uh, there is a place where there's false guilt. A lot of times the reason we feel guilty is because we, we are guilty. We've done something that's wrong. And that shame that we experience personally is an indication that we've broken that which should not have been broken. John Aldrich puts it this way. Uh, Sin is missing the putt when you come up short. Now, interesting, the word sin actually means to, to miss the mark. It was used of a one who was shooting arrows at a target, and whenever they missed the target, they called it a sin. And those of you who have played golf, you know you've sinned quite a bit. You miss the putt all the time. It's interesting. John likes to add the story. The part of the thing is that when you try to make a putt and you come up short, what you've done, there's absolutely no way for it to put in the hole. If you want to make, have a chance to hit it in the hole, you've got to hit it hard enough so at least it gets there. And no matter what we do in life, we fall up short with God's standard. Now, as I looked at the variety of definitions that people gave, I thought, well, I've got to put my own definition in here. And so the 13th definition is my definition. It's sin is being selfish. And I've used this when I work with children sometimes. I'll, I'll say, you know, sin is, how is sin spelled? S-I-N. What's the middle letter for sin? It's the letter I. What we really have here is we have an I problem as it relates to our behavior before God and before people. We're, we're, we're looking at that which is only good for us. And it doesn't take long for us to realize is there a, there's a lot of things we do in life which... We're always doing it for the purpose of self. Now, it's interesting. This is the only one I'm grading. As I read more this past week on sin, I had theologians argue with that definition of sin. They said, well, you know, that's not, that's, it's, it's a biblical definition of sin, but it's incomplete. And so I want to tell you that that definition is incomplete depending upon how you define selfishness. So sin is being selfish or a problem with I depending upon how you define being selfish. It's a correct definition, as I put in your outline, if selfishness is defined as choosing your own good at the expense of others. Philippians 2.3 says, do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Or or choosing self as supreme over God being supreme. Where you want to be the God of this universe. You want to call the shots. You want to do that which is only good for you. doesn't matter how it affects God or affects other people. If that's how we define sin, that's a great definition of sin. However, there is another wrinkle to this. This is not a good definition of sin. If you simply look at selfish, being selfish is is looking for that which is best in your life. There is a part of us, as God has made us, is that when we really get down to explain why we do what we do, we do whatever we do at any moment of time because at that moment of time, that's what we wanted to do. And I'm not talking about people forcing you under gunpoint or that kind of thing. But basically, whatever we do, we do because we want to do it. Now, why do we want to do it? Some of it's out of false guilt. Some of it's because we want to impress other people. Some of it's because we feel we're under obligation. But whatever it is, we're motivated to do it at that point, either to get the approval of others, to get whatever we want to get out of it. But we're doing it because that's what we wanted. We think at that moment, that's the best choice. Now, if you define selfishness as that, then sin is not selfishness because God, more than anyone else, wants you to pursue that which is best. Do you believe that? 
I mean, God is a good God. He wants us to believe and follow Him because that's how He has made us. We are at our best when we're following God. So in, in some sense, we have a sanctified desire when we know that God's will is the best will. It's the best way. Or to put it this way, no, selfishness, if, if selfishness is defined as choosing what is really best, such as eternal reward or fullness of joy, then sin should not be defined as selfishness. John Piper, popular writer today, he says that, that we are glorifying God most when we are most satisfied in Him. When we see that, that He is a source of greatest joy. And why wouldn't we pursue greatest joy? Because that's what's best for us. And it gives glory to God because now we know why he has made us. And there's a variety of passages that kind of illustrate that. In, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, we have that, that mini parable that Jesus told about the man who went out and discovered a treasure. And once he discovered the treasure, he was so precious that he sold everything, everything to get the field which possessed the treasure. And see, really, that's what we do when we find Jesus Christ. We see there's nothing to compare with living for Him. It doesn't mean it's not going to be easy. It doesn't mean there's going to be some cost involved in it. But it's what's the very, very best. So sin is selfishness if you're seeing yourself as the supreme being. But if you see God as the supreme being and you just want to connect Him, that's the best way to pursue Him. But the sobering truth, and we've already touched on it, we need to understand that there's a price tag with sin. Sin is that which is worthy of death. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. So this is, this is, at least from God's perspective, not something to take lightly. It's not saying, well, I know you're all hung up on all these rules and do's and don'ts and trying to uh, please a God you can't see. But if this is true, and we rebel and disobey God and go our own way, there is going to be a consequence. Now, the worst thing that we can do for children as they're raised in the home is to never give them consequences because they feel they can always get away with things that are destructive for them. And then they learn out in the real world, no one rescues them. And God is warning us throughout our life that there is a price tag to whatever we do. And because that is true in the temporal level, how much more is it true in the eternal level? So what's the point this morning? And I spent most of my time on, again, the bad news before we look at the good news. Is that we'll never value the good news unless we see ourselves under this sentence of death. That it involves every one of us. And as the Bible says, even our righteousness in God's eyes is as filthy rags. We always fall short. Well, that's making sense of sin. What's making sense of salvation? And I'd probably retool this a little bit because I initially intended to spend all my time on this and we have to race through it. But we're going to look at one individual. And for those who are the, from the Jewish perspective in the Church of Rome, this made so much sense to them in terms of persuasion because what they did is they looked through the, uh, the words of the Apostle Paul, at the prime example of a person who was right with God. And that was the father of their nation, which was Abraham. If you want some backstory, this look at John chapter 8. As, as they, even in the presence of Jesus, 
refer to Abraham as being their father as their point of being right before God. And so Paul, in very clear terms, appeals to them that if you appeal to Abraham, then recognize how he got right with God. Uh, And you need to understand by what he did not do as well as what he did do. Number one, Abraham, and you could say anyone else as well, was not or is not saved by what he did or what you do. Look at uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where Paul puts it very plainly. Did Abraham have any reason to boast that he was good enough before God? And the answer, of the course, of that is no, and it's implied in that passage so clearly. What shall we say then, that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh, his human efforts? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Because in his own merits, he fell short. He was not picked because he was better than somebody else. So in the first service, I, I uh, taught the junior high students this, this week on Wednesday. You know, and, it, and sometimes, when, if you've ever been that occasion where you're playing a sport and they're all going to be picking you and you're kind of thinking, well, I, I ought to be picked first or second, you know, whatever it might be. I'm looking at all the people around me and this is how good I am. Well, we played basketball, and I was the last pick. I'm thinking, what is this, you know? And then we played dodgeball, and I was almost the last pick. You know, and it was humbling. And and we think, I deserve better than that. And sometimes we think that before God. And think, well, Abraham, he was good enough on his own to be picked. And the whole point of the, the story of Abraham, he was not good on his own to be picked. He had nothing to boast about. Well, that creates the problem, and and that is the difference between Christianity and any other religion. Every other religion is based on works, being good enough to measure up, to be good enough. And the message continually in Christianity is you are a sinner under the righteous judgment of God by attitude or action, whether by your murderous hand or by your unforgiving, unloving, unmerciful spirit. So what's the solution? The solution was Abraham and anyone else can only be saved by who they trust in. Look at what he says in verses 3 through 5. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, there's a lot we could say about this passage, but let me just put it plainly. As he began to look at our lives, he said, you need to understand we all have a ledger here. And you can look at it from a financial perspective or a legal perspective, and we have this debt, this overwhelming debt that we cannot pay for. We ought to be talking to our government in that perspective. But anyway, you know, and we're looking, how is this going to be dealt with? And he uses the word in the New King James, it's, it's a great way to translate it. It's accounted for us. Some people, it's reckoned to us. Some say it's imputed to us. It's a Greek word, logizomai, which is an accounting term, which says there's a ledger, and something is taken out of someone else's account and put into your account. It, it's a one-sided transaction. It, it's like having a particular Bill, maybe within your own family, and realizing I'm never going to pay this off. And then someone comes alongside you and says, I'm going to write you a check, and I'm going to pay completely in full what you owe. 
totally one-sided because there's nothing you're giving this person who comes alongside and writes that check. And, and that which was filled with debt is now paid in full. But you know what's interesting? Not only does God, in a sense, forgive the sin of the debt, He imputes also the righteousness of God. So we stand before God not only forgiven, but righteous. The Bible says, and this is my favorite verse as it relates to communion service. I didn't quote it because I wanted to use it in this particular setting. Is in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made Him who knew no sin, this is Jesus, to be sin in our behalf. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Not only have, have your sins been forgiven, but you are made righteous in His eyes because it's been imputed, it's been put on your ledger. So how are we saved? Not based on what we can do. We always fall short. We have nothing to boast about. How are we saved? By believing in one who can save us. And then third, realizing it's all by the grace of God. Look at just at Romans 4. We'll just look at the first part of verse 16. We could try to, we don't have time to unpack the whole passage, but it simply says this. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to what? Grace. In many ways, we need to understand that we're not even really saved by faith. We're saved through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. It's the avenue by which we take the responsibility to to hold on to what God has done. And what is grace? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's that gift which you don't deserve purchased by the only one who can afford the gift. As we look at salvation, salvation is all about understanding our condition and our problem, the bad news. We are guilty before a holy God. You know, as I look at sin, there are two reactions to the message of sin recorded in the Bible. Some some people look at their lives and they they compare themselves to Hitler or Saddam Hussein or whatever it might be, and they say... uh, I'm not as bad as they are. My sin's not that bad. And I think when God sees me, he'll say, well, you know, you weren't perfect, but you weren't really that bad. And so they desperately don't believe they need a Savior. They don't need someone to rescue them. I think I've told you a story. I've been out in the oceans and, you know, just having a good time, and the lifeguard comes out and trying to rescue me, and I'm thinking, I don't need to be rescued. I can swim. I can get out of here. And I rejected the rescue. And it's like that. You know, I'm not, I may be out a little bit deep, but I'm not that out there that deep. And they, they think they're not that bad. And then there's the other side. There are people who have fallen into sin, and maybe the sin is just I, I've ignored God all my life. I've heard about Him. I've known about Him. And I've just, I've just played games with God, and I think God is so tired of me playing games with Him, He would never open up His heart for me. And in whatever condition, they feel they're too bad for God's grace. It could be particular sins they participated in or just the sin of ignoring God for a lifetime. So whether your condition this morning is you don't feel you're bad enough or you feel you're too bad, that God really doesn't want you now because you've waited too long, you need to understand it's all about God's grace. He offers salvation to everyone who will humble themselves before him and receive what he'll give. We sometimes explain the gospel with 
again, in the words of children, the, the ABCs. It's admitting your need and desiring to turn from your sin, which is living your own way. It's B, believing that Jesus fully paid the penalty for your sins. He died in your place and rose again. It's coming to that point where you get off the fence. You commit to follow Jesus as your Lord, God, and Savior and receive Him. If you've never made that commitment, today is the day to respond to His offer of dealing with your sin and rescue you for His family, His eternal family in salvation. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, for many of us, we've heard the story over and over and over again, but maybe, again, we're on the outside looking in. Sometimes we feel we're not bad enough, and sometimes we feel we're too bad that you wouldn't want us. But the truth is, is everyone needs to respond to the message of who Jesus is and reach out and receive that which by His grace He's willing to give. If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, I just invite them to, to just to pray a very simple prayer, talking with you. Dear Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I admit my need and, and I turn from my own way. I believe that you paid the penalty for my sin and, and rose again on And then I now want to commit to follow you as my Lord, my God, and my Savior. I want to receive you right now. And Father, when we pray that prayer, you answer that prayer according to your promises. And Father, for those of us who know you already, we we just pray that we might live lives of humbleness and gratefulness to a great and mighty God who gives us a gift we don't deserve. Guide us to make those commitments you want us to make. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning-